0: As far as I'm concerned, as long as that same respect and recognition is not shown toward
1: every one of our people in this country, it doesn't exist for me. And during the few moments that we have left, we want to have just an off-the-cuff chat between you and me. Us. We want to talk right down to earth. welcome back to another episode of the malcolm effect today is an interesting conversation all my conversations have been interesting but i think we're not i don't often speak about faith on this podcast i have done a podcast speaking about is islam an anti-black religion with um, my cousin and, and close friend mustafa briggs and today we're addressing what I think is the right time to address it. And I'm glad to have with me Yahya Ba as my guest. Please welcome to the Malcolm Effect. Hello
0: to you, Mahmoud, uh, and to your audience. Assalamu alaikum. Uh, peace be upon everybody. Hope you're all well.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Wa alaikum assalam. And peace and blessings be on to you. Okay. I mean, you know me. I don't shy away from getting into it sometimes on twitter and this is something i've spoken about for quite some time actually it was a trend i noticed quite way back and i called it an intentional alignment by a specific scholarly class with right-wing conservatism and in doing so i found people were trying to understand islam or to prove that islam is at least politically more aligned to the right. And obviously that immediately raised alarm bells because I'm thinking to myself, okay, what does that mean when all too often those on the right, racist, anti-black, are reactionary? So, and then it made more and more sense when oftentimes the people who, who were espousing those views or trying to prove the alignment were often white converts. But this was me just speaking on Twitter, beefing people on Twitter, and then I'm glad I came across this article, which is is entitled The Unbearable Whiteness of Being, Convert Leaders in the West and the New Ethno-Nationalism. So before we even get into the substance and the juicy parts of this article, because I feel Yahya has put to pen and encapsulated so much of what I've been trying to say, talk me through the title. Well,
0: to be honest, the title was a bit of a joke on... (laughs) (laughs) on the film milan kundra's film the unbearable lightness of being and i got some flack for that title but it was too good (laughs) it was it was worth (laughs) the flack it was too good i mean i just had to say it because you know i mean you know we have to get to a stage where if we're being critical that whiteness has to become unbearable to, mm-hmm. to white folks and it, and it's already unbearable to non-white folks so that's what I'm trying to say you know it's it's what's its bearability and uh, when it comes to Islam and it comes to how Muslim minorities in the West are positioning themselves with the great kind of shift towards a kind of open, ethno nationalism or white nationalism, yeah. you know, in many parts of uh, in many in many parts of the world, not just in Europe, Muslims have to think about how they position them, how they respond to that. And uh, I was very worried to see that some of my fellow convert white converts were jumping on that bandwagon. And I wanted to I've been sitting on this for, for several years. But, you know, I just felt I had to say something. And, you know, I've been in dialogue with some of the people there. You know, there's some of those people I mentioned, Abdul Hakim Murad from Cambridge and Hamza Youssef. I mean, both of them have been my teachers. Abdul Hakim has been a mentor to me. I've known him personally for over 30 years. Mm -hmm. So there's a personal dimension to this as well. So I had to pick my words. And uh, But I felt that there was some kickback, obviously, but a lot of people also were relieved and happy uh, that somebody had said it because they felt it was past time saying it. So uh, like with all these things, you get like
1: a polarized kind of reaction, you know? Of course. And I'm so glad you said it. It's something I had noticed for quite some time. And I personally understood it to be a reaction against the left because i had found in many discourses amongst muslims they had they felt like they were presented with a crossroad and at that juncture they had to pick are we going to be among the left they categorize the left as those people who are obsessed with pronouns and those people who are obsessed with trans issues or are we going to align with the right where at least in the right we still have the concept of family and traditional values and, and at least then it's more to do with it's more in alignment with islam and then what i had found in those discussions i had found then people were trying to read islam so for example roe v wade being a brilliant example 96% Ninety-six percent of abortions in America take place within the time frame within the, the broad scope of Sunni Islam allows. So I thought to myself, why is it all this hoo ha over four percent? But again, it kept feeding back into that narrative. So I guess my first guiding question or leading question would be, in perhaps reductive terms, when you're when you're analyzing the situation at hand, how do you think we've got here?
0: I mean, I think that there's a deep context. So if we look beyond the, the the last couple of decades, you know, the deep yeah. the deep context is that we've forgotten that there was a synthesis between the, the broad left in Muslim anti colonial struggles. Yeah. And, and and there were many and we have our own Muslim radical tradition stretching mm-hmm. back to the nineteenth century. You know, if you want to deep it really for me you start with Imam Hussein. But that's a discussion mm-hmm. for another day. But, but just talking immediately about Muslims and the left, you know, we, we have a f- forgotten number of figures, both in the diaspora and in the Muslim-majority world, that we need yeah. to work on and recover. And I think then that there's the legacy, I think, of the persecution of religion by some post-colonial socialist states. So that left yeah. a legacy of suspicion, understandably so, ending with, you know, the, the, the treatment of the Muslims in Central Asia under the Soviets. Then I think there's the context of the Cold War. So you've got the galvanization of anti-communism by America's allies in the Muslim world. And that had a deep impact on some of the ulama, a deep impact on some of the Islamic revivalist movements that are still in operation today. So all these residues or legacies, you can say, came with Muslim, the diasporas who moved to the West after the Second World War, Like all these legacies were there. And, and once Muslims got here, there was also still a radical tradition. So Muslims, post-colonial Muslims, they join worker struggles. They fought yep. to make Palestine an international issue. They fought for the ending of apartheid. They fought against racist violence. They fought against structural inequality. They fought for culture of dignity for when their religion was disparaged. Its sacred and physical symbols were attacked. The term Islamophobia itself yeah emerges and comes out of the struggles of Muslims in the West. And that's in the late 20th century, and it comes out of of Britain, actually, and it becomes a globalized term, you know? I mean, I don't mean the term was invented earlier, but what I mean is it's popularized from the 90s onwards. You know, and Muslims, you know, in the West, historically voted for parties of the left, right, the broad left. And then you have the war on terror, and that pushes Muslims into a position where they've got to fight for their rights they've got to fight against the rise of a security state that is targeting them as suspect communities and they've got to deal with a massive propaganda attack on islam as a kind of violent inherently violent religion so given that kind of history it is surprising yeah that we see muslim leaders muslim communities drifting back towards the right mm-hmm. given that given that history and i think There are two reasons for it, and you might want to add some, but I've got two. One is I think there was always people who were willing to take up the good Muslim role in the war on terror yeah, with all that that entails. And we could go back and talk about that if we have time. The second, I think, is just what you mentioned earlier, sort of appeal to sort of family values, which meant overlooking kind of direct open Islamophobia and threats to basic Muslim religious freedoms and, you know, bombing Muslims in the Muslim world you know it it meant that you on the basis of family values you'd overlook all these other things and so you know I think that there was a some hold out the hope I believe that through shared values somehow these other things would be dealt with or or overcome or something like that. kind of (laughs) there's this kind of an idea isn't there that there's a kind of through similarity of values somehow all these other bad things will stop I mean, I don't see, any, I don't see any way. evidence for that, but, but I think that is a kind of a belief that some people have—a kind of fear—and a kind of there's an element of fear in this. I think we've got to say that of people just tr- yeah. trying to survive. I think some of it is about that. Uh, for some people,
1: it, they already are ideologically aligned, you know. Um, um, yeah, and and I think in addition to that, <laughs> what I have also seen and heard is things along the lines of, well. At least on the, and this is, (laughs) honestly, me repeating this is, I have to laugh. At least on the right, it's only, the threat is only physical, literally, only physical, I've heard this. Whereas on the left, the threat is ideological. The interpretation of that, or the argumentation, following the line of argumentation to logical conclusion, is that the right will only damage you in this world whereas aligning yourself with the left and leftist politics or the ideology of the left will hurt you in the akhirah. So, yeah, <laughs> I, heard I heard that it.
0: one. and In fact, I, I think I talked to one of the ulama who actually made that one up, who lives, Cal- oh, okay. lives in California. Well, he claimed it anyway. Um, he oh, lives yeah. in California, um, teaches at a certain college there. And um, you know, I, I I don't know what that means. I mean, I don't think
1: I think that's like a throwaway line, uh, honestly. <laughs> <laughs> no, very. Um, it's it's interesting to see in many ways because you then see this polarization, which I personally, I mean, you've given a a, a more brief history. I would say, in many ways, I locate these these debates or these divergent opinions in a crisis of modernity and i think there's a crisis of modernity so and and people muslims like men like all of us are struggling to grapple with this crisis of modernity mm. so then you find a drift to an appreciation of an admiration of figures like jordan pearson because, for example, he's, you know, he's the, you know, OK, but the West did this. But, you know, look at all the good things they do. It's claiming masculinity. It's, you know, I heard someone go as far as saying at least Jordan Peterson has allowed for religion to no longer be a source of embarrassment. And I said to myself, OK, if that's the case, if we are struggling and battling with a crisis in modernity, then produce a Muslim response to it. Why do we find that our response must come from right-wing reactionary places or Christian fundamentalism? And again, for me, I would even go further and say, well, one of the best critiques of modernity is like those black thinkers who have been at this, you know, diametrically opposed to it and struggling with it and struggling through these questions. But again, you know, these thinkers never even quote black thinkers.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think, I think that's right. I think, I think that the, for our, the maturation of the uh, communities in the West, for sure, we have to recognize that we all are deeply like in, uh, defined by and work for or against or with or through modernity, yeah, whatever you think yeah. that means, right? And so the idea that any of us can be sort of purely free of it somehow yes. is a bit of a myth. If you know what I mean. It's sort yes, of like saying absolutely. that you can only be pure or authentic if you somehow abstract yourself from your time and your place. You know, that's yeah. not my understanding of how the dean is supposed to work. The dean isn't supposed to be abstracted from time and place. Absolutely. But it's interpreted through time and place in each in each time and place as universal tradition, yeah. It's if it's for yeah. all times and places, but still in your moment you're making sense of it in your time and place. So this idea of kind of abstracting ourselves from the West and from modernity, I think, is a kind of comforting myth that, that we are telling ourselves at this stage of our uneven development. That's the way I look at Absolutely.
1: it. Absolutely. So we have to talk about this. What is the neo-traditional movement attachment to someone like René Ganon? okay I'm not I'm not a great expert on this but I did bone
0: up on this question a bit because you 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 sent me this one I mean I look Reignan I'll talk a bit about Reignan but the person we really need to think about is one of his students Julius Avola and this is not to say they agreed on everything far from it in fact they had a number of disagreements but I'll get to why I think they're important but okay so neo-traditionalism I define that as a movement within Sunni revivalism and it emerges in the West in the 90s and it's really defined by, in, in the article, I say it's really, you know, be, beyond saying that it represents authentic Sunni Islam in mysticism, law and and creed. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I think the two things that really mark it out, one is a kind of, it's influenced by the anti salafi movement that comes out of Syria, we see mm-hmm. Ramadan al boote and its defining sunnism against set the salafi critique of al albani mm-hmm. and others okay so that's one aspect of it the other aspect is what we're talking about is you kind of it takes the critique of rené rignaud who was a french metaphysician who uh, who um lived between 1886 dies in 1951 he basically uh, comes out with this criticism of modernity as materialistic and godless okay Mm -hmm. now from a decolonial perspective or from a critical left perspective what what really stands out from his critique of modernity is there's no in his work key works there's no the reign of quantity you know there's no systematic critique of racism slavery genocide or colonialism and I think yes. that's really significant because if neo-traditions are building on 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 his critique of modernity, then it's unsurprising that hit the absences in his thought are also the absences in their thought. And so, like his idea was that you know there was a spiritual core of truth that's manifested in all religions, and basically he he had an in- insistence on probably because of his influence by from theosophy and Freemasonry, which inf- were influencing seekers in 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 western europe at that time people were trying to find a grounding for faith okay yeah. they had this idea that basically you know you had to be initiated into some kind of mystical order and so it's unsurprising when they looked to islam that they embraced sufism Onto to solve, okay, because of that yeah. kind of prediction. And the other interesting thing is that the idea that we're now living in a dark age, okay. And in this are influenced by Hinduism and the idea of the Kali Kali Yuga. So the Kali Yuga yeah. is a dark age where people of spiritual aptitude are now a shrunken, tiny minority, and the vast majority of people are irreligious, and there's nothing that can be done about that. And that's important for two reasons for neo traditionalists One is it gives them a pessimism about politics and political yeah. transformation. The second thing it does is that it makes it by nature elitist because yon only thought a small elite, spiritual elite, could be saved. You know, wow. so they always sort of work with small numbers. And when you go and look at his disciples and their disciples, you know, more often than not, you find them f- making themselves close or comfortable to where they get an opportunity, close or comfortable to the ruling powers that be. So say to St. Yeah. Nasser, who is, you know, a kind of follower of a student of Reunion's and starts off his career, really, in Iran, you know, in the Pahlavi court of the last Shah. And has to leave quickly in seventy nine when there's a, a revolution. But anyway, so so this is Rengon. But if Regnon's the father yeah. of this traditionalism, okay, out of which yeah. I think neo traditionalism owes a lot for its critique of modernity. He's the disciple we need to think about more. Is his who Rengon certainly didn't see eye to eye with, was Julius Savola, the Italian, who dies in yeah. nineteen seventy four. So the thing is like he's really the father of political traditionalism. And what's really important about him is that he, he develops a critique of Mussolini's fascism from the right, not from okay. the left, from the right. Okay. 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 So he says basically that, you know, it's it it's too much of a mass movement. And he really believed in true that there has to be a kind of aristocratic warrior class that has to lead okay. society. Okay. And, and and basically that this this warrior class would be the ones who would fight for the survival of traditionalism and would protect it in the modern world. And so you can see how that becomes more political. The parallels are striking. Yeah, so it, And it <laughs> becomes, you now what's really amazing about Evola is that because he kind of was a critique of Mussolini and a bit of a critic of the Nazis from the right, he's kind of yeah. recuperated after the second world war. He's not tainted so much by them. And he becomes mm-hmm. influential in, in, in right radical right circles in Europe. In the post-war period, yes. but what's really fascinating is that in the current wave of ethno-nationalism, some key figures have been influenced by Evola. So Alexander Dugan in Russia, um, Olavo took Carvalho in Brazil, who who yeah. was a right-hand man to Bolsonaro, and mm-hmm. Stephen K. Yeah. Bannon, who obviously was brought into the Trump administration, you know, yeah. when when they started in the in 2016, and runs Breitbart, and you know, has been behind a whole lot of, of dark stuff. So the thing is, is that when I, Abdullah hakim Murad, you know, he, in a 2016 lecture, he kind of tries to recuperate elements of Evola. So yeah. he kind of, while he kind of, you know, says, look, I don't agree with his racism and I don't believe, agree with his quasi-fascism, you know, he does agree with Evola that it's a loss of identity in modernity that accounts for racism and Islamophobia. So what that does, it sets a scene to recover identity to recover identity ie to lose your racist values, you have to be more indigenous so you know you have to stick to your traditional values. so instead of equality, you embrace hierarchy. instead of celebrities you embrace true heroes. instead of deracination you embrace national identity. so like you see there's a kind of like an inversion uh, going on here. The other thing I should say about Avola is he actually does a double a bait and switch so he actually really criticizes the the fascist classic fascist for colour for colour racism. But then he replaces it with a kind of I would call it a kind of deep spiritual racism. It's not it's the it's it's the, the problem of men's souls, not so much their appearance. And he still reinstates a hierarchy between Aryans and non Aryans you know, particularly Jews and, and black peoples of Africa. So, you know, he it's like he says, I'm not racist, but I'm this kind of super racist, I guess, is the way to look at it. And so, you know, that, that even people today are trying to re- rehabilitate Evola in Muslim circles amongst converts. Yeah. They're glossing over this aspect of Evola's support for a kind of, I call it a kind of
1: spiritual metaphysical racism. Um, I mean, my lens, obviously, I mean, I must, you know, unabashedly, unashamedly, I draw on a lot of uh, Marxist critique of society. Yeah. Um, And I think it's important here, when we think of how do you think a class dynamic plays into these factions? Well, I think if you think there is one at all. No, no,
0: I think that clearly like neo-traditionalism and I speak of somebody who was involved in it, you know, it's always had a middle class kind of upper class kind of appeal, hasn't it? You know, if you contrast it with Salafism, Salafism in the same period was a much, had a much broader working class appeal, I would say, than neo-traditionalism. And I think that's obvious from the way they pitched their appeal and everything.
1: Yep. And and the prices of their rikles.
0: Yeah, look, you know that's 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 a simple way. Cost it, cost it. How much are they charging? You know, and you know when I came to the dean, you know, back in the late eighties, you know, in Britain, you know, like, all of the main movements that were catering to the to, to the migrants who came over to Britain, you know, they were yeah. all like I would call them all. Everybody pitching in mm-hmm. and and making do. Nobody has some money, but it was understood that everybody would give something privately. Yeah. You know, it wasn't like religion as a business like nowadays, like everything has a price and we don't know the value of everything and everything costs. Yeah, you know, it, it there was true solidarity. I don't want to let overly romanticize it, but honestly, there was some good values there, like proper brotherhood yeah. of working people, ordinary working people. So, like, I appreciated that. And yeah. and and that that's sort of been lost, you know. Younger generation don't even like twenty somethings won't even remember that. But I do. Absolutely. And it was something real and 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 you know amazing. But yeah, I I agree with you that class is like one of the great, great kind of un- underplayed elements. But with Stuart Hall, you know, I do believe that the culture always shapes the way in which we understand class, and how it's mm-hmm. inflected through different circumstances so it's not that class is a kind of like a concept that's completely expressed in one way around the whole world so i think you know like stuart hall always kind of like drew our attention towards looking at it
1: in a kind of nuanced way. but the- Absolutely, and I, I, I'm a great fan of Stuart Hall, so yeah.
0: But yeah, this the, the neo-traditionalists for, for sure, you know, th- this is not a, m- a movement that is known for its radical street activism or, you know, if anything, is not known for, you know, doing a huge amount of massive philanthropy and social work, you know. It's always yeah. been focused on, you know, in the first stage on education, uh, a small scale education. And then it's been focused on, you know, I guess after 9-11, it was focused on public outreach. And then it became, in, you know, entangled into politics, really. So Hamza Youssef joins the Trump administration, Quango, which is yes. the Commission on Inalienable Rights, which yeah. was basically designed to take the America's culture laws into the constitution into constitutional law. Of course, it was advisory and nothing happened, but you could see the intent, um, you know, if you read the report. It was kind of trying to rejig the hierarchy of rights so that, you know, all of a sudden, you know, more recent rights, the gains from the Mm -hmm. civil liberties period would be downgraded and religious rights would be put, you know, back to where they belonged and, and that kind of thing. But again, I think that joining the culture war in that combative way I think is 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 not something that I think Muslims of the West should be doing. Exactly. Uh, yeah.
1: But you've laid out and we've spoken about like this ethno-nationalism. I mean, you know, in order to reclaim, you know, personhood in a full way, we have people have decided that we have to lean into ethno nationalism and you know they speak to the degeneration of culture. I mean that that becomes manifest. For example, in Henry Yusuf's Riz comments, in which, when he's just explicitly asked about state-sanctioned violence against Black folk, he almost wants to not have that conversation, and speak about Black-on-Black crime, and then he mentions the fatherless households, and you know the usual right-wing quotes, which are which are you know uh, have been heavily disputed, refuted, and and can be found you know online in many places. I say that to say. When we think of the securitization of of Muslims in the UK, the term British values then becomes a, its relational opposite. What do I mean by that? There was this understanding that the the further you embrace British values, the less likely you are going to be, you know, commit terrorist acts or be influenced by right wing, sorry, fundamentalist uh, Islamism. So and then you find that this kind of prevent is prevent and secularisation of Muslims is born out of, or uh, is kind of in relation to this kind of moving away from British values. But when what I found personally, and you can disagree with me or you can have a comment, is that when ex-colonised people or descendants of the colonised become further entrenched into Britishness, they lose the radicalism.
0: Yeah, I mean, I don't think in the in the British government sort of official list of British values, radicalism gets gets <laughs> gets a mention, and I think we all know that why that is because essentially it's a form of it's Britain is the way I I read this is Britain is moving in a kind of French direction, where mm. where the school becomes a tool for cultural and national assimilation. More yes. more so than in, 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 in the past, yeah. past decades. And so, you know, you have to remake all these children within a kind of template of Britishness, which is quite narrow. I mean, my, my daughter's just gone through sixth form and my son is a graduate now. But, um, but you know, as young Muslims growing up in the UK of dual heritage, you know, they, you know, it it, it was tricky to steer them through the the real propaganda that that they had to face in citizenship studies, in religious studies. I mean, Islam was almost always associated with violence um, or with retrograde values, almost nothing positive, with low expectations from from white teachers and so on. Uh, You know, it's a toxic mix. After the Trojan horse hoax, scandal yeah. we can see that muslim excellence is feared in the, in the educational mm-hmm. space and so you know i think that it's although there's this rhetoric of british values i think it's actually about keeping keeping muslim peoples down and black mm-hmm. and other peoples and other people of color keeping them down yeah. and so that the education system is is, is disserving them it's not serving them and you know we know we all know that educational success is tied to recognition of your and and valuing of your distinctive identity and heritage and if that is disvalued or disfigured or dismissed you know that's going to affect the child's self-esteem how can they learn yeah. in a hostile environment so look I'm telling you things you already know but but this I think is the, like the pernicious aspect of this British values agenda tied to a kind of securitization through the kind of prevent policy is I think the children have been the main victims of this policy so it's absolutely. right it's right that we center them actually in this discussion
1: No absolutely absolutely can I no, can I ask you like yeah. uh, yeah, can I course. ask you
0: a question because I I'm I I mean if um you mentioned that you you kind of you turn to marx for inspiration for critique how do Ooh, yeah. you combine your faith <laughs> with your po- political kind of tools of analysis you know like as a marxist muslim like and do you have role models who help you walk that
1: walk Th- that is a brilliant question and it's something i am daily wrestling with daily wrestling with in terms of a part of my work i do want that to be incorporated in how I balance this, my faith and my political lens of analysis someone like my, Cornel West helps a lot mm. because in his book Prophecy Deliverance he is wrestling with this very question of trying to put forth an Afro-American theory in, which helps us deal with the condition of Black people in in, Amer- in, in North America and in doing so he's wrestling with you know, Marx's analysis and his Christianity. Mm. As you know, we have Martin Luther King, you know, depending on who we speak to, depends on the type of Martin Luther King we present. But Martin Luther King, besides the person who is touted for nonviolence, besides the person who's touted for his uh, long-standing commitment to justice, he was an intellectual, a bona fide intellectual. And I've read Martin Luther King's essays in which he's wrestling with communism, Marxism and Christianity. Mm. Um, And these are the people that I draw on inspiration for and, you know, how, what does it mean to adopt a materialist analysis of the world whilst clearly believing in a a religion that is steeped in metaphysics? Mm. These are the questions I'm wrestling with. Why I got drawn to Marxism, I think is a good question. And this was because after spending, you know, I spent six years in Egypt studying with various uh, scholars and sheikhs. Time studying in Al-Azhar Mosque as well, the traditional sciences. And for all too often, what I'd found in this circle was a, a capitulation, a quiet to, to governments, a quietism, a refusal to engage in modernity. And this is besides the racism, the sexism, the patriarchy, and the misogyny that was justified in the language of religion. So and I found someone like a Malcolm X who again, we speak of we think of Malcolm X as a great figure he was, we forget he spent three months in Egypt. We forget he was questioned on his faith, on his aqeena by al-Azhar. We forget that Malcolm X was granted an ijazah from Azhar to give da'wah. We forget that Malcolm X was one of the first people to be given five, up to five scholarships in which he could send African Americans to study in Azhar. So we forget he had that background and that training. And we've All of that, what did he say? He comes out as a Pan-African. He comes out close to figures like Kwame Nkrumah. He comes out and says that he, you know, Islam has this revolutionary potential. But in my own journey, I could not, I believe, and I still do believe in this revolutionary potential of Islam, but it's a potential. And that potential needs to be actualized. And the places in which become, oh, sorry, are the bastions of Islamic learning around the world, I did not find that. I found the quietism and I found a refusal to engage with suffering and oppressed people and a refusal to be on the side of justice. And I think my, anecdotally, my last kind of straw was, I remember I was in two groups, a group where we're talking about liberation, a group we're talking about, you know, emancipation of people and being on the side of, in the language of Corner West, the least of these. And then I, simultaneously, I exited that WhatsApp group or that I think of maybe a Signal group, and I entered a WhatsApp group to with which was full of uh, students of Islamic learning. Some of them are some of them are imams now. Some of them have institutes. I studied alongside them, and the discussion was: Can women travel outside by themselves? And I said to myself, Yeah, I can't. <laughs> I can't live my life like this anymore. I can't live my life where the discussions of the day. In the 21st century, our discussions of where women can travel outside, or I could be amongst people who are really thinking about justice and, uh, and oppression. Mm. And that's what kind of pushed me towards Marxism. How I now kind of syncretize that with my faith, I would say first and foremost, I believe that I believe I don't believe adopting, sorry, I don't believe adopting a materialist analysis to politics presents me with any. Theological dilemmas when it comes to my relationship with Islam. For example, the verse of the Quran in which Allah speaks and says. Again, by the way, I just want to make a note to my listeners. This is very not new, but I'm still fleshing this out. So it's you know I might change my opinion. I might have more to add. But just in very kind of basic terms, we believe Allah is the ultimate healer, but we still have medicine. We have this world is a world of asbab causes. Allah has put causes in existence. For example, when Allah speaks to in the Quran, he says, everything good and bad comes from Allah. And then a few verses down, Allah would say, however, everything bad comes from yourself. How I understand those verses that the first is metaphysical in the grand narrative. And the second is how Allah wants us to behave, how Allah speaks to us in the material. I hope that's a very long way to answer, Yahya, but I hope that made sense.
0: <laughs> it's fine. I mean, I, I just, I guess, you know, where, where we always part company with Marx as believers is that he kind of had a view of religion as opium. And, yeah. and or alternatively, you could argue today that sometimes religion is more like speed. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know, it, uh, it, its not necessarily putting you to sleep; it's waking you up. But, but uh, what 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 I'm saying is that you know he 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 couldn't see its connection to a radical tradition, and um, yeah. you know. But but I I think there are examples, and maybe that's another podcast. I guess another question I wanted to ask you as well is that going back to an earlier part of a discussion, it seems like a lot of as you were mentioning at the top of this podcast, a lot of people have jumped onto the American culture wars and like a lot of Muslims like uncritically seem to be taking their cues from the right when it comes to attacking anti-racism and wokeness and even like critical race theory, which I mean, all I understand critical race theory, and I'm not an expert, but all I understand critical race theory to be is looking structures, deep structures in order to understand how race, racializing outcomes occur, and it's going beyond yeah. the intention of the individual. It's looking at institutions, it's looking at systems, and whether it's in law or policing or, or whatever business. And I can't believe that the you know the, the the Republicans are attacking it precisely because it is such an important tool of analysis of structural injustice. Yeah. But for Muslims who themselves are the victims of very similar systems and most of them being yeah. of color, they're victims of the same systems that they they they, they would attack a tool that can help them yeah. without understanding it is something that I find really you know upsetting and disappointing. And in your experience, because I know you said you do a lot of stuff on Twitter, what
1: do you think the best way to counter this reactionary, Kind I of. mean, tying, tying it to the last question and what you said, I think ultimately, the greatest tools that I am um, with Marxism Marxism, thinking things about that, di- thinking things dialectically. And, and funny thing is, it's, it's the critical race theory stuff, I think, again, it's important to note, it's a legal theory that emerges out, okay, why is it on the statute books, we have all these egalitarian laws, but the outcomes still produce inequalities. That's its central premise. And as you said, quite rightly, it looks at what is it about these structures that are producing these inequalities that are based on race. Ironically, as someone who's a Marxist, I don't even like use CRT that much. I think it's it's an okay analysis, but I feel like dialectical thinking, material dialectically thinking is much more um, useful. In, in addressing the question of okay how, what is it how do we understand black people's subjectivity in a given context I think that is far more useful than critical race theory in terms of how we combat this online honestly the right-wing hegemony is is again as can be has been adopted and it's so superfluous that we can't even I don't know. I don't, it, I don't say it's insurmountable. I definitely think it's surmountable. But at this moment in time, we are, you know, me, I said that's the one on the left, we're at the back foot. Yeah. And I, I, think, and I, and I think the left don't do themselves any, any favors because they want to argue over things like, you know, <laughs> things that are not so important. For, no,
0: I, I, I think the left, you know, the, the crisis of the left is is obvious. And and, and, and yeah. one of it is is lack of imagination. And lack of big big thinking big yeah. picture thinking um i want to come back to like kind of anti-racism and ask you to carry on with my question about faith and politics yeah. how what does islamic anti-racism look like to you great question i'm, I'm gonna ha- ha- that was a question i have to ask to you what well, <laughs> well, did you do you want me but, to um, did you want me to to say what i think it could look yeah. like and then you can disagree or chip in or, or whatever yeah i for again like you said earlier this for me this is like a work in progress yeah. so you know i i um that the reason why i think this is important because there's a younger generation in britain and in america who are co- going back to anti racism they're embracing yeah. uh, in the wake of black lives matter global movement yeah. they've embraced and before that as well because of prevent and and things like this they've embraced but you know it's a very secular in its tone there's very little religious reference I mean, I would call it something like a kind of bismillah, anti-racism. <laughs> you know, you, you happen to be Muslim, you say bismillah, but then like it, you can't see you. you have no reference, you know, you, you haven't yeah. done any work to connect your faith to your po- politics. And and I think it's important to do that like Shariati did, you know, Shariati encounters Fanon yeah. you know, he, he's in Paris, he studies sociology, but he makes an effort when he goes back to Iran to put it into the, the language of the people. He talks about Mustafa yeah. fiend, you know, the oppressed yeah. of the earth. He makes an effort at translation. And that's why I'm concerned with we should be making that kind of an effort. And that's yeah. why I insist on on like thinking this through. So I think, you know, like, okay, in terms of anti-racism, there's homework. You know, you've got to work in yourself. There's yeah. pe- working with people and the structural work we are talking about yeah. before. But in terms of homework, we can think about the West African tradition. Like, you know more about this than I do, probably, Ahmed Bamba talked about racism as a sin of istikbar. So racism Mm -hmm. is a sin of pride. It, It comes out of pride. And the, the narrative of Satan and and, oh, yeah. and his response to Adam, okay, that he he claims superiority on being made of fire. Adam is made of clay, so he takes an inherent quality and he he makes it yeah. the basis of superiority. And so, you know, in the in the in the context of anti-colonial resistance to French racism, Ahmed Bamba connects that narrative to makes racism mm-hmm. a sin of pride. So I think that's very interesting. We can do spiritual work as individuals. White folks need to work on themselves, and we need to work against, you know, pride. And so that for me, that's homework. That's something you do. You work on yourself. You know, you you, you work on people. And then I think, you know, you have to look at, I think structurally, you have to look at white supremacy or worldwide supremacy, as Malcolm called it, you know, as a kind of tarot and and i do think tawhid is another key concept tawhid and i hear i'm not leaning on classical sunni Islam. i'm leaning on on to the anti-colonial muslim thinkers i mean today yeah. they're called islamists but yeah. they extended the idea of tawhid to include you know things like you know the idea not just that it's a false idol but it's a system of tyranny and oppression you know, a yeah. system of oppression, opposition, trenchant opposition to God and his prophet. Now, the fact that Tahrut is extended politically as a concept in the anti-colonial period, I think is something very important and that I think, you know, we, we should take from that because I think if if white supremacy is a Tahrut, then in Islam, the DNA of Islam is iconoclasm and we have to knock that idol down. And so, you know, the, for me, then that language plays directly into an abolitionist commitment. You know, if if I'm a white abolitionist, I want to abolish my own identity, and I want to at least to reduce it in the world. I have to have a commitment that one day there'll be a there could be a post post white identity. Yeah, that you have to have a commitment to that.
1: And, I, I think yeah, I think that's the job of um, in many ways white people should do that work. That's a, but but you I have to I saying. have
0: to be able to I have to make I have to be able to make I have to think of an alternative. If you see what I mean, yeah. you can't walk into quote unquote a void, can you? You can't Absolutely. offer people nothing. You have to say, well, what, what were we before we were white? And what, what would yes. we be after we are white? I'm not saying you, what you were before is what you would be after, but it's it's, yeah. it's to help your imagination, isn't it? To say, well, there was a connection of language, history, culture, and so on, before yeah. colonialism and chattel slavery and, and everything else. I, I think the other thing intellectually, I think a couple of things I would say with anti-racism, I still think the secular left sees Muslims just as victims. And they don't see us yeah. as agents, people who could be actually equals in analysis and in conversation. It's sort of like they, okay. they I, I don't think we're seen as equals. And I think, you know, we need to have a more grown up relationship, a more honest relationship. And so if we bring a bit of our faith vibe into anti-racism, they should, that should be okay if you know what I mean. If we say tech beer occasionally, do you know what I'm trying to say? I I agree. We need to mix it up.
1: They need to be happy. I I agree with you. I think what I'm saying is, again, so those people who like on the left who just have this, you know, who lump all religions together and see them as like the scourge of the earth. I think, again, Mm -hmm. they're not even dialectically thinking about religion. I think religion can either be a source of revolution or can be a source of quietism. And I think, Islam definitely leans towards a revolution. So absolutely, I agree with you on that. And I think a quote I was reading recently, 10 Thesis on Marxism decolonization, it said a political, cultural and ideological struggle must be waged against structures of racism and patriarchy and must be treated with as much importance as the class struggle. I would also add to this a religious struggle as well. Hmm. So I still think that conversation is yet to be to reach its fruition,
0: isn't it? I mean, I still think we're at the early days of that. But I I would like to see that, you know, perhaps our analysis of racism would be a little bit, would be to extend it as well back in time, Mm -hmm. back into Christendom and to understand that, you know, that's where Islamophobia, anti-Semitism and anti-black racism kind of slowly emerge out of scriptural resources of Christendom and how they emerge Mm -hmm. into the early modern period. So, you know, there's lots of work to be done on, I think, understanding the origins of racism, how racism is inflected through culture and civilization, as well as through phenotypical, you know, skin color-based racism, you know, all these things come together. So in that, there's plenty of room to see how something like Islamophobia works with the racializing logic. Absolutely. So I think, you know, we still need to have those kind of debates. Um, And I'm sure you're well-poised, inshallah, to make a good contribution
1: in this regard, as are you. I've really enjoyed this conversation. I think this, we have to have another one. But I, I said fifteen minutes, but I think I want to still ask this carving out of this American, you American Islamic identity. How do you feel anti-blackness plays, if at all?
0: It's clearly, it's 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 clearly important. I I I mean, I haven't given this the thought that I necessarily think it deserves. Um, okay, but fine. but what I would say is that we've talked about this idea of neo-traditionalism you know, invoking the idea of indigeneity. So you have to, you have to kind of have an indigenous, indigenous identity in order, in order to counteract modernity. We were talking about mm-hmm. it earlier. So I think that this idea of indigeneity can be very dangerous for excluding black and brown Muslims okay, in Europe. Yeah. So the idea that you know, the convert can only authentically convert if they remain in, true to their indigenous culture. And in that way, they can save Europe and call them to monotheism, to Islam. Okay, this is a kind of the basic sort of idea. But the way I look at it is that what it is indigenous, is a moving target. And so, you know, for me, I think about because I'm I'm old enough. I remember the two tone movement in Britain. So. Yeah. In the two-tone movement, it was a black and white working class and brown youth came together, created their own music, their own fashion, and, and they were st- strongly supporting the anti-apartheid movement, strongly active, active and anti-racist politics. So that that, that was that what that was that was young people from different backgrounds making something new that was cultural and political. Yeah. So for me, that's indigenous. Like I grew up with two-tone, the specials and and selector and that was the music madness that was the music that i was into (laughs) at the time right that was my music so that was indigenous to me so what i'm trying to say is that whatever is indigenous is like a moving target it's not like it's fixed it's never fixed yeah so i'm saying whatever islam in the west is going to look like it can't look white yeah Mm -hmm. it has to be it has to be like a rainbow it has to be multi 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 multi-vector multi-color everything right to be creative to be open to be cosmopolitan to be inspiring right because there's so much the ummah can learn from each other so for me the final thing i'll say is the ethic of ta'aruf yeah in the quran ta'aruf you know of getting to know each other That's listening, that's holding space, that's understanding, you know, that's showing compassion and love for each other and hearing each other out through the pain, through the trauma to get to the creative moment where we start to kind of make something new. And that, that's what I'm, I think there's a lot of that going on at the I don't think it's all trauma. I think there is a lot of creativity out there. Absolutely. So despite, you know, everything, yeah, despite everything, people are not allowing the Islamophobia and racism to distract them from their business yeah. and what they want to do right so i take the Absolutely. words of tony morrison very seriously that don't get distracted carry on planting your tree right even if the trumpet is st- sounding right on the uh, day of judgement plant your tree so the way i look at it is you still carry on doing your work I mean, I'm not saying you don't do the anti-racism and all of that, of course, but you, you've you got work, you've got creative work, you've got institutions, books to be to be building, institu- books to be writing. Do you know what I'm saying? You've got your Absolutely. work to be doing. So, yeah, yeah, okay, you will oppose the racism, but it's not going to define your life. And that that is, for me, is, is part of our calling as Muslims, you know? After la ilaha illallah, we reject the oppression, we reject the racism, we hear, Illallah. we are still affirming Allah. Yet we are still reciting His names, trying to embody them, and we're still gonna gonna live live
1: that life, inshallah. You know, so I keep
0: my oh, hope. Really.
1: Yes. thank you so home. much for this conversation thank you so much I'm sure we're going to be in continuous conversation I've really enjoyed this you're listening to the Malcolm Effect with Do. please like comment subscribe on Spotify Apple podcast or wherever you listen to your podcast the Malcolm Effect will be found there until next time peace out